0: Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. This week we're going to be wrapping up the series that we've been in talking about these four statements that um, sort of bounce around our culture. They're things that we say a lot of times when we feel like we should say something but we really don't know what to say and they get repeated so often we start to think that maybe God said these things, that maybe it's something that Jesus said or something that the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament and we've just sort of been going one at a time and asking ourselves where do these things come from and how reliable are they and are these little things, as sticky and memorable as they are, are they things that we really should be building our lives upon? And uh, I want to encourage you, if you missed any of the first three weeks, to go back and take a listen, Um, watch them on one of our uh, uh, social media channels and catch up. Uh, A lot of these, there's so much information packed into them that you could probably listen or watch them a few times to catch everything. But today we're going to tackle this last one here, Uh, this idea of all sins are basically equal. And I know a lot of you are like, man, this is what I was hoping to get into right after Thanksgiving, just talking about sin, deep end. Um, but all sins are basically equal. Probably something that you have heard at some point. And depending on, you know, how how you take this, how you interpret this statement, um, it's a, it's a nice way to sort of let ourselves off the hook. Um, uh, you know, it's kind of a way of saying like, sure, listen. <laughs> okay, I'll admit it. I might have done something wrong, okay? But it was only you know, as wrong as whatever it is you're doing, okay? So let's just make a deal, okay? I'm not gonna confront you about the wrong stuff that you're doing. You don't talk to me about the wrong stuff that I'm doing and we'll just both be like quietly wrong, like doing whatever we're doing for as long as we wanna do it. I feel like it's kind of like the the yeah but of, of, you know, religious uh, morality, spirituality, um, it's sort of that thing of like, you know, where we push back. Like if someone confronts you about something that you're doing that they think is wrong, you just quickly blame shift and divert by pointing out something that they're doing that is wrong to sort of throw them off your scent or off your trail. And if you have kids, kids do this all the time, right? Um, where you will get onto a kid about something that they've done of just like, did you are you are did you just punch your brother in the throat? Yeah, but you took my muffin yesterday. And you're like, a muffin? This is over a muffin yesterday? Your brother will never be able to swallow normal again, okay? Like, that's, what are you doing, right? And it happens so often with kids and frustrates us about kids, and yet we do it too. Adults do it too. Um, There are moments where it's just like, I've been talking to people where they've said things that, you know, maybe this where somebody's talking to you about something, and you're like, can you hear what you're saying right now? Um, where, but it makes sense in their mind. And maybe you've done this too, where it's just like, I can't believe she would confront me about shoplifting when she is totally sleeping with her boyfriend. Okay. So she has no business. Right. And it's just like, okay, yeah, that she may be doing that, but like, isn't shoplifting still wrong regardless of what she's doing? Like, isn't that still something that like, how does that let you off the the, the hook? And, Essentially, you know, our our belief is, you know, if the person that is drawing attention to what is wrong in my life has anything wrong in their life, I get to ignore them. That's kind of the idea here, that even if I am wrong, I'm not wrong if the wrong person tells me I'm wrong. Have you ever rationalized things this way, right? It's just like, okay, yeah, I mean, that might not be okay, but like, I'm not going to hear that from you right? And so, because you were the one that said it, and I know stuff about your life, I get to ignore. But is what they said true? Irrelevant, okay? Irrelevant to this argument, because the person that's drawing my attention, they have they have their own stuff, okay? So, like, with, without the sin, cast the first stone, and that whole thing, okay? And we just sort of grab hold of whatever we need to justify ourselves. Now, what do we even mean, when when we say right and wrong? How, how would we even define those? I think we have to back up and grab hold of some definitions in order to sort of move forward and unpack this phrase. Um, when scripture talks about things that are wrong, it, it uses this word sin, and it comes from this Hebrew word, uh, avira, which literally means to cross over. And so it's, it's, it's where we get this idea of like you Listen, you just crossed the line, right? It's this idea of like, there's a, there's a boundary, right? There are limits to, to the way that something works and someone crossed over it or they violated that boundary or completely ignored it. And the question then is then, what are the lines? What are the lines between what is right and what is wrong? And who gets to draw those lines? Because those are important questions. And to answer this, I think we've got to back up really to just defining a Hebrew mindset, right? Our faith is is rooted in uh, Judaism, which is the Hebrew people. And if you go into sort of a Hebrew worldview, the idea is that the cosmos was created, right? It didn't just happen by accident. It was created by an intelligent designer with a degree of intentionality. And when we, the creation, right, the creator's creation, when we align ourselves with the intentions of our creator, we flourish. And when we don't, we won't. Which brings up the question, like, how do we know what the intentions of our creator are? And again, these people, the ancient Hebrews believed that God communicated uh, his intentions or his law to them um, through scripture. And like, it was sort of his code of how to live his way. And uh, the language that's often used um, in the law or you know the Torah, the all throughout the Old Testament, is sort of this idea of like, listen, if you live this way, then you'll be blessed, right? But if you live that way, you'll be cursed, right? There's all these things that are connected to blessings and curses. And sometimes we we imagine it as God is sort of punitive and he's like, you know, he's handing out spankings from heaven somehow. But really what this is, is it's something that you understand on a very basic level, right? Essentially what is being said here is that everything produces something, that there's a cause and effect to everything that happens. And so it would be really handy uh, if there were some effects that we didn't like, that weren't healthy, that weren't helping our lives, if we could know what was causing them if we would know like, what, what is out of whack in our lives. And so essentially, God wants us to understand how cause and effect work on a cosmic scale. And so we might say that sin really is an attitude or an action that is out of alignment with the way God made the world to work. This is the most generic definition that we could um, probably come to, but I think it's one of the most helpful. And you, you probably understand what an action is, right? To act on something. An attitude, maybe that's a little more fuzzy. An attitude is essentially a pattern of thinking. It's not just an occasional thought. It's not just an idea that sort of pops up, right? It is a pattern of thinking. It's a thought process that you visit over and over and over again. It becomes a part of who you are. Now, why does this stuff matter? Why is understanding what is right and what is wrong? And why is avoiding sin an important thing or a significant thing or something that we should devote thinking and time and energy into? Um, I'm gonna read you a handful of verses today uh, so I can connect the dots on some of this. And we're gonna go kind of quick. So uh, you might wanna write some of these down just for later. Romans chapter six, verse 23 says this. The wages of sin is death. Now, we don't use that word wages much anymore, right? Um, but it essentially means, means payment for, right? It's like a paycheck, right? So no one really says much anymore. Like, I've worked hard, where are my wages? Right, we don't do that. But it's essentially saying this, that like the, the payment for sin is death. Like sin produces death. Now, this doesn't mean necessarily that when you sin, you're gonna drop dead immediately, right? Um, There are a few instances of this in scripture. They're some of my favorite stories because they're so insane, but it's very rare. I can only think of one or two. Um, It doesn't mean that, but what it does mean is it introduces a death spiral into the thing that it's connected to. And you've seen this work in your own life. Like sometimes the payment for certain attitudes and actions inside of a relationship is that that relationship begins to crumble, right? That relationship begins to slowly suffocate and die. Like we understand this in terms of, you know, our our physical health, right? Like that our body needs certain things to survive. And if we starve our body of those things, if we don't get enough rest, if we don't get enough nutrients, right? If we don't take care of ourselves, our body slowly deteriorates and it dies because it's crossed over the boundaries of how it was made to function. And what scripture reveals to us is that this, this principle applies to everything that God made. And if you begin to rebel against these things with your attitudes and actions um, over time, it begins to create a, a sort of spiritual death in your soul. And this is not anything that anybody wants, which brings up this question of like, man, how do we avoid that, right? Right? How, like, what sins do we need to stay away from so that we can avoid this, this sort of spiritual death, this disconnection from God, this complete misunderstanding or even eventual blindness to what is good and holy and, and even being able to experience and understand love? Which sins do we need to pay attention to? And you're not going to like this part because it's the kind of the answer is like all of them, right? This is what James says. James, the brother of Jesus, he says this, uh, chapter two, verse 10 of the book that he wrote and titled it after himself. Uh, he says this, the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who's broken all of God's laws. So in other words, the way in which God sets the world up to work, like when we deliberately, like, you know, we, we botch one of those things, its we, we've broken the whole code. It doesn't matter how small that thing is. And some of you are like, wait a minute, that sounds like basically he's saying like everyone Is a sinner. And that's exactly what he's saying because Paul just comes out and says it. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He says, Everyone has sinned. You're like, Don't beat around the bush. What are you really trying to say here, right? Everyone has sinned. Like we all fall short of God's glorious standard, of the way in which God created us to function. Like we all find ourselves rebelling against it, pushing back against it, aligning ourselves with certain attitudes and actions that aren't stacked towards that thing. We invite death into our lives in this way. But it's not just that we commit to doing bad things, but it's that sometimes we just avoid doing good things. James sort of piles onto this idea by saying this in James chapter four, verse 17. He says, it's sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. A lot of translations actually render this, uh, it's sin to know the good you ought to do and then not do it, right? So it's not just about like avoiding certain things, but it's actually we're made to participate in certain things, to do certain things, to be proactive about certain things. So, you know, we've all done things essentially to invite relational and spiritual death into our lives. And it's not just actions, sometimes it's, it's even small attitudes. And, and Jesus adds to this conversation, by saying something like really challenging. He says this in Matthew chapter five, verse 27. He says, you've heard the command that says you must not commit adultery. Now he's referring to uh, one of the 10 commandments, right? These expectations handed down to the people by the creator. And Jesus, who is God, adds to it and he says this, but I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What does that mean? Because it sort of sounds like Jesus is maybe saying like, listen, all sins are basically equal, which, you know, we, what we wanna hear from this is like, listen, lusting is basically the same thing as adultery. So you might as well just go full tilt and commit adultery, right? Thanks, Jesus, right? That's not what he's saying, though. I just wanna make that really clear. Because you know somebody's gonna just take that clip And just put that on the internet. He means it in the other way, the opposite way. He's essentially saying like, listen, if lust is as bad as adultery, you may want to address the issue of lust in your life. Essentially, like Jesus isn't saying that our selfish actions aren't as bad as we thought. He's saying that our selfish attitudes are just as bad, if not worse, That the stuff that we, like the repetitive thought patterns that we sort of, whether we committed to them on purpose or whether it's just, we've just sort of like gotten locked in this loop of the way that we think about life and ourselves and others, that that thing can be one of the most destructive things about us. Why would Jesus say something like that? Why would Jesus take this definition of sin and make it even more difficult, make it even more broad? Like, why would he take it from just external actions, like things we do, and bring it into the things that we think, to the, the thoughts that we, that we repeat to ourselves over and over again? Like, is Jesus, like, is he trying to make us feel ashamed? No, Jesus does not want you to feel shame. He wants you to feel guilt. Some of you are like, wait, is that a joke? No, that's actually true. That's what he wants you to feel. And there is a difference. And the reason why we recoil from this is because we're not aware that these are two separate things. Shame is different than guilt. In fact, shame says, I am bad and there's no way to change or escape that. But guilt is something different. Guilt says, I did something bad and I need to make amends for it. Now, a lot of us in our culture, we've sort of merged these two separate things into one cohesive concept, which it is not. And this has led us to believe that no one should ever feel either of these things ever. But here's what I want you to understand. We should feel guilty when we are guilty. This is the way in which we're made to function. And even though part of you like may not like that. You may wanna push back against it philosophically. I would say that probably a lot of you agrees with this um, just in terms of practicality. Like let's say, for example, you have a kid that lives in your home. Hopefully it's your kid and not someone you kidnapped. But let's say that you have a child, right? And let's say this child like is having a bad day and they freak out, right? And they throw a fit and they take something that is valuable, right? They take an iPad and they throw it out of anger and it just shatters, right? And everyone in the whole family is shocked. Everyone is stunned. And among other things, you send that kid to their room because you're so angry. You're trying to protect them and you, you know what I mean, from that moment. And eventually you go into that room and you sit down and you look that kid in the eye and you have a conversation about what just happened, what is it that you are wanting from them in that moment? I would argue this, you want them to feel bad. You want them to feel bad because they did something that was wrong. You want them to want to say sorry. You want them to understand like, how their selfishness cost other people the ripple effect of their actions in that moment, and you want them to want to make amends. Why do you want that? Because you understand that guilt isn't entirely a bad thing. You understand, like most people, that there really are only two types of people that don't feel guilt, okay? There's saints and psychopaths, right? Right? Saints are people that, like, are, like, over time they've drawn so close to Jesus that they hardly ever sin. And so they just live almost guilt free. Isn't that amazing? That would be, that's an incredible trajectory to try and point your life at. Psychopaths, other end of the spectrum, right? They don't even have the capacity to feel sympathy, right? They don't have the ability to feel bad for something they did that impacted someone else. And so they just go about doing whatever they feel like doing with no repercussions. They could murder someone that's like their best friend and then just sort of shrug it off and go out and have beers and have a good time right afterwards, right? And I'm not trying to raise a psychopath, okay? Which is why I want my kids to feel bad in that moment. And they're not saints, I know, because I live with them, okay? They've racked up a lot of sin just in my presence. So I know that's not there. And so I want them to feel guilty. I want guilt to do the work that it's designed to do in their lives because I understand it has a point. What I'm trying to say is this, guilt is good. Except when we wallow in it. Like when we refuse to listen to and appropriately act upon it. When we don't leverage it For what it's for. Guilt is there to help us by letting us know that we need to make a change, that we are living incongruent with the intentions of our Creator. And until we change, that guilt is gonna stay with us because that's what it's there for. And this may come as a shock to you, just sort of being someone who has always existed in and breathing in and functioning in our culture is that there is no place where any of the writers in the New Testament ever bring up the idea that guilt as a whole is bad. But there is a type of guilt that is bad. It's something that I would call false guilt. And this is when you feel bad despite not having done anything bad. And this is the kind of guilt that does a lot of damage. Uh, Oftentimes I'll have people that will start coming to church here that are from like really, um, they grew up in really conservative church environments and they'll be like, oh man, I just, I'm feeling weird today. I'm like, what's going on? They're like, I just, uh, I'm wearing shorts and a hat to church. I mean, is that like, am I gonna go to hell, <laughs> right? Because they grew up in an environment where you had to put on your Sunday best, right? You had to like, you had to dress up to come to church and they're not used to an environment in which that's not necessary. Now that's not something that God tells us that we ought to do, right? That's a piece of sort of church tradition, particularly in the South, And so this feeling of guilt that sometimes we experience from these moments, it's not that you are out of step with your creator, it's that you are out of step with your conditioning. And sometimes our conditioning is in line with what God wants us to know and be and do, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes we're so familiar with something that when we break from that thing, we feel weird, even though the thing that we're breaking from isn't necessarily something that God wants for us or from us in the moment. So maybe as you're thinking about all this, you're like, okay, I can see how maybe I, like in doing things that affect or impact other people, that I would need to make amends, that I would need to change my behavior and feel this need to make things right. But like, how do you make amends spiritually? Like when, when you've done things that have sort of like peeled your heart away from God. When you've put a separation between you and him, when you've rebelled and kind of ignored him in your life for so long that that has become what you're conditioned to do, how do you repair that thing? And there's a limit to what you can do because you need God to really do a lot of that for you. This is what um, John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. He says, if we claim to have no sin we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. So if you're just like, I'm sin-free, I'm good, I don't do anything wrong, he's just like, you're a liar, okay? You're living in denial. Um, just ask the people around you. They'll feel free to tell you all the things that you are not doing well, not doing right, right? He, then he says this, but if we confess our sins to him, to God, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. In other words, what we're being told here is that we can't fix our broken hearts and our toxic attitudes, and we can't kick our own addictions or repair all of our own relationships on our own. In fact, if you could do this entirely by yourself, you would have already done it. But in fact, a lot of us feel trapped, right? We feel trapped by certain patterns of actions or certain patterns of behaviors, and we just can't escape. We can't seem to make things right within ourselves or even with other people because we need to invite something bigger than us to act on our behalf. We have to actually get to the place where we admit that, that, that something is wrong, is off about us, and we have to ask God for what's called mercy. Now think of it this way. If we go back to this example of um, your horrible kid, hypothetically, that broke something in your house. And let's say that you're in the room with them. And let's say that they are just, they're, they're teared up and they are, they're very apologetic. And you know them well enough to know that they, they mean it, that they are genuinely sorry, that they wish they wouldn't have done it, that they know that it's wrong. They feel bad and they wanna make things right. There's still an issue here. And that issue is, you still got a broken iPad. Let us not forget. And chances are good that, like, your six-year-old kid probably does not have the means with which to repair or repurchase a new iPad to completely make up for it. What do you do? You throw that kid in debtor's prison, right? Seems absurd. We would never do that, right? When we see that they, they genuinely mean it, that they're, that they're repentant, you as a parent, you bridge the gap, you show mercy, you pay the price for them. And, and this is really a picture of what Jesus does for us. Jesus bridges the gap sin creates by sacrificing himself on our behalf. He reconnects us to him at his expense. So the relationship between us can be put back together, even if the situation can't, which sometimes is the case. Because the reality of it is like, you know, restoration requires repentance. Just like John says, we have to come to the point where we acknowledge that like, yeah, I don't have it all together. There are some things that are off in my life. I don't think a lot of us want this though. I think what a lot of us want is something that God is really not offering, which is part of our tension between us and him. I think what a lot of us want is we want the guilt to go away even though we're not sorry and we have no intention to stop doing the thing that we feel guilty about. We wanna keep doing the thing that's wrong and not feel guilty about doing the thing. But that's not how guilt works. That's actually how painkillers work, right? Like they numb you out, but they don't address the root issue. And I gotta tell you, God isn't interested in giving you numbness. That's not something that he's offering you. He's offering you healing, restoration, and freedom. And none of these things can you access in denial. You have to come to a place of repentance. So we've all sinned, We've all damaged our relationships. We've all invited death into aspects of our lives and our souls, despite how big or small the attitude or action is, it necessitates mercy from God to make us right with God and to even empower us to go and make amends in different areas of our lives. So all sins are equal, right? Yes, except not at all. This is what makes this a conversation. Essentially, what what Scripture shows us is that although all sins disconnect us from God equally, the consequences affect us differently. And you already sort of intuitively understand this. Think about the consequences of sin as like a, a series of concentric circles that ripple outward, right? So you have sin, you have the thing that you do that sort of breaks away from or crosses over a line that God has drawn. And then you have the damage that it does to you. Then you have another ripple of the damage it does to the people around you. Then you have the damage it does to the reputation of Christ. And then you have the damage it might do to the world at large, or sometimes even to the universe as a whole. Now let's take like Jesus' example. He has this example of like, you know, lust and adultery and affairs. Let's say that you... Decide that you're gonna have an affair. Hopefully, this is a hypothetical, right? Not a great idea. There are consequences to you, there's damage it's going to do to you, especially if you are already in a relationship. So, you've broken a promise and made yourself a liar to one person. You've proven that you have not been able to uphold a commitment. You've gone outside of that relationship. Now, you've got lies, you've got manipulation, you've got cover up, you have all of these layers of things. You have been distracted from the things that you were supposed to be doing so that you can do this other thing on the side and all the damage that that does to your soul. Then there's the damage to the people around you. There's the damage to the person that you're with. If you're married, it's the damage that it does to your kids to to the person that you've cheated with, to their kids, to their family. There's an economic uh, uh, component that is involved here, right? There's now all the shuffling around. There's the friends that now have to pick sides. There's the ripple effect into the community of how it breaks people apart and begins to shatter the relationship. There's the damage that it does to the reputation of Christ. There are people who sit back and think like, oh, I thought you were a Christian. I mean, I didn't expect you to be perfect, but like, isn't the whole idea that you follow after Jesus and that that makes your life better, that you hold yourself to a higher standard, that you follow him? It seems like you just kind of do whatever you wanna do and then expect Jesus to clean up your mess afterwards. It doesn't seem like you're following him? It seems like you want him to follow you around. And then there's the, the damage that it does to the world at large. You think of like the... Um, affair and, and uh, divorce statistics in our country, you, you think of the, the data that has been pulled out of the, the, the problems that that has created in our culture and how that ripples out into the world, the attachment issues that causes in kids' lives that ripple out to the way that they see all the relationships that they function in. From then on, how it shifts their worldview, how it changes their idea of love, sex, commitment, their experience of the world around them, how they think, how they vote, the kind of world they create. That's that's the impact of like I don't know, this girl at the gym. There's a lot of damage that ends up being done. Now I want to be clear like people who get divorced are not terrible. And I don't want you to, to experience a sense of shame from that because that's not something that God wants you to feel. But I would say this, the, the situation itself has terrible consequences and God does not want this for us. I think sometimes when we envision God and sort of the boundaries that he sets in life, we sort of envision this angry being up in heaven being like, how dare you do this to me? But I, that's not how I see God at all. From, from the representation that, that we're, we're shown in Scripture, especially through the lens of Jesus, I, I feel like what we're really seeing is we are seeing a compassionate Father who's like, don't do this to yourself. Don't do this to the people around you. There's something so much better that I have for you. So if we're to look at this idea through this lens, there's a difference between these different sins, right? The, the, the ripple effect of adultery is so clearly devastating. Maybe let's say that the issue for you is the other end of the spectrum that Jesus talks about is lust. Maybe that doesn't take you beyond the first circle, right? Maybe it, it's just like sort of what it does to you. Maybe it just wastes a lot of your time and attention. Maybe it distorts your view of women, Maybe it has all these impacts and effects on you, but just you. I mean, first and foremost, that's enough in God's mind for it to be an issue worth confronting. Because he doesn't want anything to destroy you. But even beyond that, the reality is the attitudes that we indulge in determine the, ad- the actions that we engage in. All of these things are rooted somewhere. This is why Jesus is talking about like, you guys are out there trying to like control and police people's actions. Let's get to the heart of where these actions are taking place, where they're stemming from. All murder begins with hate that is harbored privately in someone's heart. Like all affairs begin with the seed of lust. An attitude, a repetitive thought that gets indulged. And I think this is what sin does it it blinds us to the bigness of its ripple effect to convince us to, to toy with it. And unfortunately, some ripples can't be reversed. And that's something we don't want to talk about. Like, yes, God can redeem things, he can repair things, but you cannot go back in time and undo something that was done. And sometimes that damage has consequences that we find ourselves living with forever. So back to this idea we have of leveraging this, kind of idea as a yeah, but excuse. Like, I mean, <laughs> you can't call me out on stuff because I mean, I know what you're into. <laughs> in fact, I'm gonna tell everyone on Facebook, that's what I thought, back off. There's something that Jesus says that I think bears repeating here. We've said it in a different week. Matthew chapter seven, verse three says this. Jesus is talking, he says, why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own. Verse five, first get rid of the log in your own eye and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. And again, when we read this, there's what it's really saying and there's what we want it to say. What we want it to say is like, listen, you've got no business talking to me because you've got stuff in your own life. So check your plankage, Patricia. Patricia. And that makes us feel empowered, but like what Jesus is saying is, is literally the opposite, okay? What he's really saying here is don't let the sin in their life keep you from confronting the sin in your life. And that's what we want to do. Like, I don't really need to deal with that because it's like all sin is equal and you got your own stuff and whatever. And also, I'm not going to listen to you and you don't have a right to tell me whatever. And Jesus is saying like, don't do that. Don't let the sin in their life keep you from confronting the sin in your life. And and how do you confront it? This is where it gets really intense because Jesus and Paul use the same exact language when it comes to confronting the attitudes and actions in our life that are out of alignment with who God has made us to be. And this is the word they use, crucify it. You guys are somewhat aware of what a crucifixion is, right? It's not pleasant. In other words, what these guys are saying is they're like, when you identify an attitude or an action that is out of alignment with who God has made you to be, brutally, openly, systemically, and completely destroy it. I mean, that's not what we wanna do. I mean, when I have something in my life that is wrecking me, and I find out about it, uh, usually I'm kind of attached to it. So I'm like, I mean, do we really need to crucify it? (laughs) Let's give it a time out, okay? Baby steps, okay? Someone's not getting a happy sticker today (laughs) that just, I don't wanna go after it crazy, okay? Because then people are gonna notice, right? You know, I mean, how long am I gonna have to like wrestle with and deal with this thing? And like, I don't, just, uh, Why does it have to be so extreme, But crucifixion indicates going to extremes to uproot your issues. Notice that it's talking about your issues, by the way. This is where Christianity gets a bad name. We're like, Jesus wants us to crucify the the sin. And so I'm gonna crucify you. It's like, you're not supposed to go out and crucify other people. You're crucifying your own attitudes and actions. You're dealing with the log in your own eye. The darkness inside of yourself. So what does this look like? How would you even do this? Have you ever seen someone who is, who's trying to break free from an addiction to drugs or alcohol? Have you ever seen like the extremes they've gone to to do that? I've had a really a couple of really close friends um, that I've been in their lives when they were trying to distance themselves and detox from a heroin addiction. And let me just tell you, it was brutal, and it was extreme. And the only way they could really break free from it was to brutally, openly, systemically, and completely destroy it. There was no hiding it. There was no pretending like it really wasn't that bad. And you know what? People noticed. Because it, it affected all of us, right? It was just like, listen, yeah, we can't go to eat there because I don't, I don't go over those streets anymore. I don't drive down that way. You guys can go hang with them. I can't be around those particular people because it's just, I have an issue. There's a problem with that thing. I can't handle it. That's where I have to say no. I mean, and, and also there's stuff I gotta do on the other side. I mean, when I'm, when I'm feeling tempted, I gotta call this person and I need them to answer and they gotta talk me down and I may need to throw myself into another activity so that I don't just find myself going down this rabbit hole. That's crucifixion. And this is what I wonder. What if you went after greed and anger and lust and selfishness and jealousy and pride in your own life with that level of aggression? This is what Jesus and Paul are inviting you to do. But here's the thing. The goal of pursuing God isn't just to do as little bad as possible, but to do as much good as possible. This is the way that, that one of the writers in the New Testament says it, Titus 3, verse 8, says, all who trust in God should devote themselves to doing good. And, and this is the real issue with sin, is that it prevents us from doing the good we ought to do. Like James says, right? And I'll tell you that most of that good that you ought to do is not random, right? It's not like, ah, oh, if you weren't sinning, you could do more random acts of kindness, like you know, I go ahead and swipe that card for the car behind me too. Points in heaven, no big. That's not what this is talking about here. What he's saying here is commit to the kind of good that will create the reverse ripple effect of your sin tendencies and remap your mind. What does that mean? It, It means this, that like, if you are constantly struggling with being nitpicky at everyone in your family and nothing they do is right and you feel frustrated and annoyed by them that that has a ripple effect that wounds those people in your life it wounds you it wounds them It wounds the reputation of christ it ultimately ripples out and it damages the world as a whole so commit to good that will create the reverse ripple effect begin to have a gratitude practice Repeat the things that you are thankful for and appreciative of to yourself over and over again. Maybe write it down. Maybe give it to those people. Maybe have a practice of affirming the people that you tend to want to rip down. That's the good you ought to do. Maybe for you, you you struggle with being selfish and self-focused and prideful. The good you may need to do is to intentionally Serve the people on a consistent basis that you are tempted to believe that maybe you're a little bit better than. To serve them. If you're materialistic and you struggle with, with greed, it may be finding a way to consistently be as generous as possible to the extent that it, it feels like too much, like it, it hurts, it's uncomfortable to battle that part of you. And we could go on and on and on because for every like negative action that pulls us away from God's purpose and his plan for humanity, there is a counteraction that pulls us close to God and his plan for humanity. And the question I have for you is like, what if this whole message, what if this is not about everybody else in your life? What if this is something for you? What is it that you might need to stop doing so that you can channel that energy into, uh, and that time and that money and that influence into something that is gonna build up you and the world around you as opposed to tearing it down? What if instead of saying like, yeah, but, but, what if you stop using that excuse? What if you stopped sort of claiming that all sins were equal as a way of avoiding facing your own? What if instead of doing that, you decided to, brutally, openly, systemically, and completely crucify the tendencies in you that tear your life down. Maybe you're like, that sounds great, but I have a lot of problems, so I don't even know, like, where do I start? And the thing I would suggest to you is begin with the item that has the biggest ripple effect. Don't you wish somebody in your life would have taken that seriously before it rippled out to you. I think all of us have certain things in our lives that are a byproduct of a decision that somebody made in a moment that they were just like, this is about me. This is about what I want. This is about me doing me. And everything's equal and it's all fine and God understands, right? And maybe that time is well past and God has long forgiven them but the damage is still being done because the ripple is still looping out. Don't you wish at some point there would have been a moment of awareness in their own life, in their own heart to say, this action, this attitude is bigger than me. Me being blind to that in this moment is the lie. I need to address this for my sake, for the sake of those around me, for the sake of the reputation of Christ and for the sake of the world. The things we do, the things we think matter. And when we submit those things to Jesus, our lives move in the right direction. What if that was the decision you made today? Would you bow your heads uh, across this room? I'm gonna pray this into your life today. God, I thank you for your truth, your guidance, for your mercy that we need. We, we do not have the ability to deal with, to tackle, to take care of all of the things that splinter our lives. And God, we are incredibly grateful for your spirit that leads, guides, and directs us, for your word that shows us what is right and wrong, for a community that helps us wrestle with nuance and understand how to interpret scripture and, and how to know if this is right or wrong for us in this moment, how to see the ripples before the stone of sin even hits the water. And God, I pray that you would lead us toward a better life, toward a more forward-thinking life, to a world-healing life. And God, that you would never allow someone else's sin to be an excuse for us not to deal with our own. And God, as we do, we know that you are with us every step of the way. And as we put in the work, God, we know that you will exponentially multiply it and allow us to do what we could never do on our own. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.